Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Well, brothers and sisters, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles or to the Pew Bibles to page 863 to tonight's passage from Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. And I just want to say it's a delight for Margaret and I to come here this evening and to have an opportunity for you to get to know us for a little bit and also for us to get to know you as you prayerfully seek the Lord's will for the church here. I have to say what an honor and a privilege it is to stand behind this pulpit where God's infallible word has been faithfully preached for decades by esteemed preachers. It is a very humbling and fearful thing to preach God's word, to preach his holy, powerful word. And so I am blessed to be able to share with you tonight from this passage from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, starting at verse 11, and I'll be reading from the ESV. Let's hear God's Word. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, A man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Pray with me. O gracious Heavenly Father, how we praise You and we thank You for Your Holy Word. For we know that it is powerful and alive as it searches our hearts and convicts us of sin as it encourages us and strengthens us in our faith. So, Father, we pray for an outpouring of Your Holy Spirit that as we hear Your Word today, Lord, that you would bless us, that you would fill us with your Spirit. Lord, be with us and teach us as we look to your Word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, it's no understatement to say that God's people are hurting. I have seen this as a pastor and as a counselor, especially over this past year. Our church in Maryland has 
felt the sting of death repeatedly. Over the past six months, we have had five of our dear members go to glory. And while most of those deaths were not unexpected due to illness or age, we have felt the weight of their passing. So many dear ones lost in such a short time has a cumulative effect on your heart. And that's just one example. For every church has had to deal with the ramifications of COVID and how to minister during these difficult days where the fear is palatable and the tension and the social isolation exposes fissures in marriages and families. And so we see an increase in depression and conflicts within the home. So in any congregation, we find that God's people are hurting. Maybe in ways that they never experienced before COVID. So our passage tonight, our passage tonight is like a soothing balm for our weary and worn souls as it shines a light on the compassion of our gracious and wonderful Savior who understands our heartaches and who seeks to bind up what is broken. And we see here in verse 11 that Jesus is traveling to Nain, which, is a, which was a small town about 25 miles south of Capernaum where Jesus had just been teaching and healing. And traveling from Capernaum, he arrives at this village sometime probably in the late afternoon or early evening. And in verse, in verse 11, Luke records this tiny telling detail that Jesus just wasn't traveling with his disciples. No, Luke records this significant detail that a large crowd had been following him as well. Now, to understand why that is so significant, all we have to do is put ourselves in their shoes, in their situation. To follow Jesus for 25 miles from Capernaum was no small sacrifice for these people. They had to leave their homes, possibly their loved ones, certainly their work, giving up at least a day's wages to follow Jesus. Why were they willing to undergo such physical effort and expense because they were hungry. They were hungry to hear Jesus preach God's Word as no other rabbi did, as one having authority. And so they went, they were hungry to hear Him preach. And they also must have wondered, who is this man? who performs these amazing miracles. I wonder what he will do next. So in verse 11, we see the crowd's sacrifice. And in verse 12, we see something else. There's another detail in verse 12 that Luke gives, which points to the Lord's perfect timing. You see, what happens in Nain was no accident our coincidence. No, Jesus arrives at Nain with this huge crowd following him just as another crowd comes spilling out of the town. Well, it seems like the whole village is coming out of the city gate to support a grieving woman 
who leads a funeral procession to the graveyard outside the city walls. Now this woman had led this procession before. Oh, she knew that path all too well. Was it several weeks before? Was it several months before? Was it years ago? We don't know. But when she first went down that road, oh, she had her son at her side to hold her hand, to offer her solace and support as they walked the same path to bury her husband. But now, oh, now she walks that path alone, leading her last loved one, her only son to his final resting place. And she's experiencing every mother's worst nightmare. She's going through what every parent fears the most, to be preceded in death by one of your children. To have one of your children die before you seems unnatural. It doesn't seem right. It's like a period in mid-sentence, as one author describes it. One of the most difficult funerals I've ever done was the funeral of a child. His mother was not a member of our church, but I was called upon to do it. And somehow we all managed to keep our composure through the service. But then I got choked up as we got to the graveside. For they opened the doors of the hearst and lifted out this white casket. And what struck me for the first time was how small it was. This little white casket, which only a few pallbearers were needed to carry to the open grave. I said the familiar words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and committed this little boy's body to Jesus' care. And it was a deeply sad moment. And after I said the benediction, an even more striking thing occurred, which was absolutely gut-wrenching. Family and friends began to leave, except for this little boy's mother, who sat there motionless until almost all had left. And then she got up to kneel beside this little white casket and she began to sob. And then she threw herself upon this casket, weeping with an agonizing cry, saying over and over again, no, no, no. So remembering that awful moment, I can only imagine the deep grief that this woman felt as she began to walk that dark and dusty road to her son's grave. And some of you may have experienced the same pain as a mom or a dad, and so you know how she felt and what she must have been thinking. But yet, You see, in all of this misery and this mourning, there is the Lord's perfect timing. 
As these two large crowds converge outside the city, Jesus arrives just in time to meet this widow in her grief. And when Jesus sees her, Luke records in verse 13 that he had compassion on her. The Greek word for compassion here in this verse means to be so deeply affected that it hurts you physically in your gut that you're moved to the very core of your being. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been so deeply moved by another's pain that it actually hurts you? That you feel gnarled up inside because of what they're going through? Well, this is what Jesus was experiencing. Jesus was so deeply, deeply moved that He felt her grief. He felt her grief to the point where it physically hurt him. And then what does he do? Well, he reaches out to her and he says to her in verse 13, do not weep. Now these words coming from any other person would be the absolute worst thing to say to a grieving mother whose son had just passed away. Do not weep. Well, of course she should weep. She just had her heart ripped out. Just yesterday, her son was alive and now he is gone in just one breath. Do not weep. Oh, of course she should weep. Not only has she lost her precious son, but now as a widow with no family, she was left destitute. This young man was to provide for her. This young man was to protect her. But now, what would she do? Do not weep. Why, those words spoken by anyone else would be deserving of a slap across the face. For if those words were spoken by anyone else but our Savior, what would they convey? A kind of stoicism where you're supposed to accept your fate or karma and be resigned to it and just keep a stiff upper lip. But these words, these wonderful words, do not weep. They were spoken by our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So they, they were not insensitive or insulting, but rather they pointed to a blessing. Jesus' words were not callous, but they were full of compassion. Because he knew what he was going to do for her out of his tender mercy, that he was going to rescue her. For what's, for what's more, it was something that she, and what's more, it was something that she didn't expect or ask for. That what he was going to do was all, all out of his grace. And in verse 14, Jesus does something startling. He reaches out and He touches the open coffin. And this gesture shot the crowd into silence. For according to the law in Numbers 19, to touch a place of a dead body is to be rendered ceremonially unclean. And who would do that? Who could do that and not be affected? Why, only Jesus could do that. The Lord and giver of life who takes away the sting of death, only He could touch death and not be rendered unclean because He would bring life 
to this mother's son. And his touch brought everything to a halt. The musicians ended their dirge and the mourners stopped wailing. And with this sudden stop, this sudden stop was just a picture of what Jesus was about to do. As Jesus confronts death and by His simple mere words, He stops death's grip on this man and He defeats the grave's victory. No, no, death, you will not proceed any further. It ends with Christ. Jesus stops death in its tracks and this son's grave will go unsatisfied and remain empty. With a quick command of arise, Jesus summons the soul of this man back to his body and he comes back to life. And this amazing act of restoration was born out all, all out of the compassion of Christ. For he knew what this widow would be up against without her son. That she would be alone in the world. Yes, yes, on this particular day, she had the support of the townspeople. But it was all very transient, wasn't it? Eventually they would go back to their homes and on with their own lives and she would be left with what? But an empty home and an empty heart. In just one day, her life had been turned upside down. All that she depended on was gone. All her dreams were dashed. There would be no wedding, no grandchildren to hold, nothing but a barren life. and No security either. There was no social safety net to fall into, no pension to rely on, no insurance policy to bank on. Without her son, there was nothing, and there was nothing for her to do. There was nothing for her to do but to rely on the kindness of her countrymen. So she must have wondered that day, without my son here to help me, will my neighbors follow their obligation to follow God's law? and care for me? Will they follow Deuteronomy 24 and leave some of their gleanings at the harvest time so that I don't starve? Look at me. I'm in an even worse position than Naomi. At least she had Ruth at her side. But me, me, I have no one, no one left to help me. Oh, I know what the psalmist says, that the Lord is the defender of the widow, but I have no confidence at all that these people will fulfill the obligations of the law. For the Lord had given these provisions in the law which reflected His compassion and His merciful character towards the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, people who were vulnerable and defenseless. And God's people were to reflect God's heart by following His law. They were to be His hands and feet to care for the downtrodden and the destitute and to bring some wholeness to broken lives. And yet if this widow knew her history, she knew that the track record of the Israelites, or what was it like in fulfilling these provisions in the law, 
She would know how, for centuries, the prophets railed against the injustices done against the weak and the marginalized. Prophets like Isaiah, who said in chapter 10, Woe to you, you unscrupulous, greedy people who prey on widows and rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment and in the desolation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? But the people of Israel, they didn't heed the warnings of the prophets. And because of their injustices, the northern kingdom was exiled and then the southern kingdom fell to the same judgment and they were sent into exile for 70 years. So we wouldn't be surprised at all if this bereft woman wondered how she was going to make it without her son. Because if history was any indication, she wouldn't fare very well relying on the convictions of her countrymen. But then Jesus meets her at the city gate at just the right time. Just as she is headed toward the grave with all the whole town behind her. And out of his compassion, he restores to her all that was lost, giving her a future and a hope to the amazement of the crowd. And it is totally expected that Jesus would do this unexpected miracle and bring his son back to life out of his compassion for this widow. After all, who was Jesus but the incarnate Son of God? He and his Father are one, as he said in John 10.30. And being one with his Father, his heart beat with the same desires of his Father. So he had compassion for the poor, the outcasts, and the marginalized. And so, brothers and sisters, this account it has implications for us as individuals and as His people. What, what do I mean? Well, if we have been born from above, if we are indeed new creations in spiritual union with Christ, then don't we share the same spiritual DNA with our Savior? We are to be like Him because we are in union with Him. And if so, then we should be taking more and more of the family resemblance and showing compassion for the widow and for the orphan. After all, what was one of the hallmarks of the early church we see it right at the inception of the church in Acts 2, 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, to any who had need. And then again in Acts 6, we see how the apostles established the office of deacon so that consistent care could be offered to widows in the church. And then in 1 Timothy 5, Paul gives parameters on how widows in the church community are to be cared for. And then as we look at Scripture, James 1.27 challenges us. It challenges us because James says, if you want to know if your faith is real and genuine, then look and see how you are doing with caring for the needy. For he writes, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and to keep oneself unstained from the world. But the main point is simply this, that God's people are to reflect God's compassion for the needy, for the widow, for the orphan, and that's just the short list. We can easily broaden that list to include single parents, the physically disabled, the emotionally troubled, or the abused. And in my pastoral and counseling ministry, I have seen how broken people are by affliction and by abuse. And yet I've also seen how the power of the gospel brings healing to their wounded hearts. And so the compassion that we have is simply the outworking of the compassion that we have received in Christ, whereby we comfort others with the same comfort with which we have been comforted by the Lord, according to 2 Corinthians 1.4. And this account shows us the compassion of Christ, and it certainly challenges us it certainly challenges us to ask ourselves, how am I doing in this area? Am I becoming more and more like my Savior? Am I growing in this area as I grow in my relationship with the Lord? As I deepen my love for Jesus, does my heart beat the same compassion that His does? It's something to consider, isn't it? Do we mirror the compassion of Christ? Now getting back to the text, we see another detail which reverberates with the compassion of Jesus. Notice in verse 15, Jesus just doesn't bring the son back to life and just walk away or say, arise and now go see your mom. No. Notice this little detail that Luke gives. Jesus lifts this young man and he gives him to his mother. What a beautiful picture of our Savior. It's so personal. It's so comforting. This is who our Savior is. He personally reunited the lost son with his grieving mom. And brothers and sisters, if he went this extra mile in showing compassion to this widow, how can we ever doubt his goodness and grace to us in our own trials and affliction? Because this picture of Christ's loving ways is only a foretaste of a deeper compassion which he would express. He would perform an even more profound act of loving kindness and accomplish a greater restoration than a son to his mom. And it would happen on another sorrowful day, outside another city gate. On that day, Jesus would look at the tear-stained face of another mother whose heart felt like it had been pierced by a sword with grief. But this time, this time he was powerless to alleviate her grief. For all he could do is to look at her at that moment and say to his friend who stood next to her, this is now your mother and woman. This is now your son. 
And his inability to alleviate her suffering wasn't due to any lack of compassion on his part. Oh no, no, in fact, it was all out of the greatest compassion that he remained where he was and he let her weep. For what held him there? But it was love. A deep, abiding compassion that caused him pain to the very core of his being. For just as in life, so in his dying, he had compassion on the needy, those who are poor in spirit. And brothers and sisters, he knew that we were desperate that we were just like that widow in Nain, that without Him that we would be destitute, that without Him there would be no hope, without Him to stop and reach out, while well, we would be walking down a fearful road to the grave, our own, in which we would end in eternal darkness and doom as death swallowed us up in victory. And yet out of His compassion, the Son of God shared with his father he willingly gave up his life and like that widow's son he would be overshadowed by death and in his dying it looked like the grave had had the victory and yet in dying it was he who had won the battle and the war that was raged was for you and for me in which our Savior died as a perfect substitute for us. He suffered the judgment that our sins deserved. He experienced His own just wrath that we deserved as He bore all of our sorrows and carried away all of our iniquities, mending the broken relationship that we had with Him due to our sin which separated us from a holy and just God. And brothers and sisters, this is how we know that it's all true. For like the widow of Nain, Jesus' mother grieved too. Now the widow of Nain grieved only for one day, but His mother mourned for three. But beloved, we know. We know what happened, don't we? For joy comes after the morning. And on the third, I know on the third day, that first Easter day, this grief-stricken mother also walked down a path that led to a grave only to find it empty. And an angel appeared and said, why do you look for Jesus? He is not here. He is risen. But unlike the other widow's son who rose from the dead only to die again, this Son, this Jesus, rose again to new life, to resurrection life, with a body that would never, ever decay. So how do we know that any of this is true? We know because we stand on the rock-solid historical fact that Christ has indeed risen from the dead. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, for if Christ had not been risen, then your faith is futile and we are still in our sins. And so we would be without hope. But Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of all of those who have died. And what is more, brothers and sisters, we have this comfort 
born out of Christ's compassion. Just as Jesus reunited a grieving mother to her risen son, so the risen Christ will reunite all of us who trust in him alone for our salvation. We have this wonderful vision of what awaits us in Revelation 21, which is one of my favorite passages. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So what is to be our response to such great compassion? Certainly the reaction of the crowds in verse 17 and 16 is instructive for us. As they responded to the miracle of Jesus, what do we see in those verses? that the crowd was filled with awe. That they gave glory to God, saying that God has visited us. And they spread the news about Jesus throughout all of Judea, saying, we saw this Jesus who raised a dead man back to life. But they really didn't know who Jesus was. They thought he might be a prophet like a Elijah, who also raised a mother's son from the dead. And yet, they were filled with awe and worship, and they spread the news about Jesus. Now, if they did all of that without really knowing who Jesus is, how much greater should our response be, we who live on this side of the cross? If they gave God glory, how much greater should our worship be? We who know that Christ has indeed visited us through, through, our, through our Savior, the incarnate Son of God. And if they spread the word about Jesus and what He had done, how much greater should our desire be to tell others about Jesus? For he not only raised a man to life, but he has given us new life now and eternal life with him to come. And when he comes again, he will give us resurrection life and a new heaven and a new earth where death and mourning will be forever vanquished. How is that reality clearly seen in your life? in your response to it? How does the deepening awareness of Jesus' compassion for you heighten your sense of awe and praise which then spills out to telling others what Jesus has done for you? That Jesus, the Son of God, that He's visited you. And that He's not only visited you, but that He's changed your heart and He's changed your life forever. For we who are believers in Christ, we possess this sure and certain hope. We have this joy which comes after the morning. Do you share in that hope?
Do you have that joy? Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank You for Your dear Son, our sweet Savior, who is like a shepherd who leads us besides quiet waters, who restores our souls, who gives us life and has given us eternal life through His death and resurrection. Father, that is so much right there that we can praise You for all eternity, for loving us so much by Your grace and by Your mercy that we have our sweet Savior, Jesus, who has given us new life and who takes away the sting of death and who mends the brokenhearted. We give you praise and thanks for our shepherd, the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.